Welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. It's Gabriel Krauser here and Nicholas Lorimer. Wasn't really a joke. <laughs> I was just doing like a sound effect. Yeah, no. It's like like on a game show when you do the intro. Warming up the crowd with the old yeah, exactly. no joke. What's the deal with airplanes, eh? <laughs> oh, well, right now they're filled with viruses. That is the deal with airplanes. It's no longer the standard Seinfeld line like, what about those peanuts? Yeah. It yeah. doesn't apply. Yeah. What about those viruses? No. <laughs> so virus story, I like starting this uh, show out these days with just a quick personal anecdote. Yeah. So my fiance is in deep trouble. She has got a German passport and she's in South Africa, which means she gets automatically three months to stay. Yeah. But then to renew the visa, you have to deal with home affairs, which we've done twice. And it's literally impossible. Like yeah. it takes them four months to renew to, you can get a visa extension, mm. uh, but it takes them four months to do the visa extension Ooh. practically. Ooh. And you only have three months. Yeah, no, that's not So good. then what ends up happening is if you try that, then you like end up overstaying for a little bit and you can't get your passport to leave. And if you overstay, then you get banned from the country. So that sucks. So she booked a ticket to fly to Germany next week. Yeah. Oh. Germany is currently like. <laughs> well, to be fair, I've got the, a bit of a travel ban. Of all the European countries, Germany is doing, I think, the best actually, uh, especially in terms of the number of people who've died from the virus. Yeah. It's got like the lowest death rate by far. They're doctors. They're doing things properly. Yeah. Um, so that's so that's kind of it's nice that they're doing things properly, but it's a little bit disconcerting. And so now the worry is like, what do you do? Do you cancel the flight because she's got an option to do that or to move the flight, or do you risk going to Home Affairs and like asking them, given these special conditions, whether they? I take my chances with the virus over Home Affairs. <laughs> quite frankly, <laughs> so, she's she's you know she's sort of your age, she's young, yeah. she'll survive. <laughs> Home Affairs, no one can make that guarantee. Yeah. This is, uh, this is true. And then the other problem is you can't buy like a mask or gloves for the airplane. Like we don't want them for every day or for, you know, because that's really wasteful and silly. Mm -hmm. But for the airplane, it doesn't seem entirely unreasonable. Yeah. But they totally run out. Mm. Oh, well. Also, final note of self-pity. We're planning a wedding. <laughs> that a lot of people want to fly to from yeah. around the world. When, when did when did the UK say that the virus is going to peak? I think it was in uh, May. 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 Uh, oh, mm. oh, when is the wedding? Mm. May. <laughs> Gabriel, so, just a note to our listeners: Gabriel's been very ambiguous about whether I'm invited or not. So I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't ever said, "Oh, you're invited," or "Will you be coming?" But it's fine. It's fine. I understand numbers. You know, some of us just don't make the list. Some of us don't make the list. <laughs> this is bullshit. Nicholas is just way <laughs> too drunk to remember. I'm honestly. not drunk. I, I've been just drinking the sweet taste of lemon twist. Yeah, and I'm drinking hot water. I'm not saying drunk now. I'm saying drunk when we talked about this and I said that you're very welcome. I, I literally don't remember. Maybe I was drunk. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. On McDonald's. Before, ooh, yes. The sweetest, the sweetest intoxicant. Um, okay. Before we run out of, uh, of uh, listeners, of listeners, <laughs> um, we we've got a few things to talk about. The first thing to talk about is is kind of something that hasn't been covered much in the news, but that Nicholas finds very interesting, and I want him to tell me about uh, a sweet, sweet romance, uh, bromance, uh, lady bromance between the public protector and the economic freedom fighters. Yeah, so I, you know, I'm, I'm going to be lying if I say I have any real insight into this because I don't. Um, but I think that it's something, and I saw, I think uh, Roman Kabanak asking about this on, on, on 
Twitter. And um, it's a good point. What What is the deal with the love affair between the EFF and the public protector? Because there is very clearly one. They are her foremost offenders in everything. Um, and it's, I think it's just driving home that point, which you know, we've been saying for a long time, that the EFF is nothing more than a faction of the ANC. Okay. And right now, they are aligned with the anti-Sora Ramaphosa faction, for whatever reason. And well, I can imagine that he doesn't he's, he doesn't sit well with them historically because well, he needs in the build up to Nasrek, yeah. the big competition was between CR seventeen and NDZ and Kosozana Tlamini Zuma. Zuma's chosen heir. Yeah, yeah. And the EFF was very much on side with Tlamini Zuma because she seemed more committed to race nationalism. Race nationalism. But it's it's a little and bit then, more complicated then, than that. I and mean, I, I want to say just one thing about that. So Jacques Poe in the best-selling book in South Africa in the last 10 years, The President's Keepers, he had this theory that he kind of ends the book off with where I think it's Mark Liffman. He's like a gangster, cigarette smuggler, runs nightclubs and stuff like that, who'd been hanging out with both Kosozana Tlamini Zuma and Julius Malema. And there's this like nice photo of all of them together and the t-shirt deals, you know, kind of small fry stuff. Mm. But Jacques Poe's thought was that like maybe the, you know, kingmakers are a strange thing. Like Julius Malema, when he became the kingmaker who, who really tipped the balance in favor of Jacob Zuma yeah. uh, in the battle between Zuma and Thabo Mbeki a decade plus ago, it was quite a implausible thing. You know, he was a young man. He was in his early 30s. He was barely literate. He got F for woodwork. He, you know, he was like, uh, his greatest credentials is that he was a struggle hero because he was like seven years old during the ends of apartheid and had run back and forth sort of carrying messages between various freedom fighting factions of the ANC when we were under a reign of terror and battles between the ANC and the IFP and the Nats. Uh, so, you know, they, in other words, no serious struggle credentials at all and uh, nothing in the way of great vision after that. But he became this kingmaker because, you know, a series of forces just put him in the position where he would make the difference in the balance of forces. And Poe's thoughts seemed to be that Mark Lifman was in a similar position in 2017 where he might tip the balance in favor of Nkosazana Tlamini Zuma by getting the EFF more solidly on their side mm. and getting those in the ANC Make the promise of a sort of EFF return to the fold. Exactly. Ideal. Well, I mean, I, I think that ultimately if I had to answer my own question, why are they so close together. I think that uh, she is a big uh, basher of, of the Cyril faction and this is all part of them trying to put pressure on Cyril because they know that if Cyril's weak he might have to make a deal with them. And if he makes a deal with them, they get back in power, Julius gets what he's always wanted which is you know a cabinet position or something. Yeah, the presidency. Uh, uh, the presidency ultimately. And then they can taste the sweet, sweet fruit of patronage. Uh, Right, so the EFF's biggest problem is that because it's not really in government... Yeah, it has to sort of get a little bit hard. here and there, you know, leech off some DA governments, leech off some ANC governments. It can't, it can't self-generate that well. Mm. Um, you know, although it still has its friends in the Limpopo government, as, as VBS, yeah. VBS kind of showed. Yeah. Um, but uh, a party like that, you know, it really, because it comes from the ANC's world, it needs a flow of resources to keep the thing together, especially when it's sort of a personality cult as as it is right, yeah. around Julius Willema. Um, he needs to keep goodies flowing to make sure that his underlings don't try to supplant him, which is the nightmare scenario for the EFF, right? Okay, but I got a question for you that's yeah. a little bit out of left field. So the patronage network, it's something that we go on about a lot at the Institute, and it's also something that I think 
even those parts of the mainstream media, the professional media that are really uh, on board with Ramaphosa and really fan on the ANC, they still really they they still like to say they worry about the patronage network. Now, when I was reading uh, Barack Obama's Dreams of My Father, his first book, which he wrote a very long time ago, he's got a line about how there was a time when patronage network was not a dirty word. It sort of, was called the feudal age. <laughs> <laughs> and he seems to be suggesting that maybe the patronage network is not all that bad. And I think the argument goes that if you've got a lot of people, especially people that have been... Uh, mo- uh, suffered disesteem in, through an unfair distribution in the esteem economy for being Irish or for being black or for being gay or women or whatever it is, then it might be tricky for them to join in the market. But if you can get them to be hired by the government to do a good job, they're adding value, they get money, they climb the ladder. And most importantly, like the, the Jeffersonian ideal is that people get committed to a country and to civic virtues if they own their own property. His thought is that like property rights are kind of the source of civil uh, liberties and of a sense yeah, of civil a duty. A and a patronage network, network is not this. Likewise, not this. like if you're working no, for no, the no, government, no, no, no. doesn't it make you really patriotic no, and really doesn't. committed to the project of South Africanism rather than race nationalism? That misunderstands the way that a patronage network works, right? And a patronage network, as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to go back to the Middle Ages because it's where I'm most comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's it's uh, I, If you had to say what is the natural form that a human civilization looks like, I would say it looks something like a patronage network. And that's because it's a very nice way of having an elite that sort of controls things, but it it keeps the system going. It keeps people happy with the system by sort of feeding trickle down, trickle down. Yeah, it's real trickle down. Uh, you know, trickle down economics is a name given to a whole bunch of things, but really this is trickle down economics. You, uh, the top guy has most of the wealth, and then he feeds some of it down to his underlings, and his underlings feed it down to people, and you build a whole network of people who are all subservient to the one above them. So there's yeah. no true private property here because uh, being in favor with your benefactor is the most important thing. That's the precondition for yeah, keeping your position yeah. and your stuff and your freedom. And your wealth, yeah. So if you, uh, you can never build an independent base unless you sort of connive a bit. Yeah. Because um, you're always dependent on, well, in the Middle Ages, it would have been your lord. Yeah, your and king. in the Roman ages. Yes, yeah. the Romans too. They had a patronage network where in the cities, uh, it, would, <laughs> it actually reminds one a little bit of South Africa, uh, people would cheer for um, and support their wealthy benefactor, uh, they 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 they'd like attend public hearings and votes yeah. for him. Uh, they'd approve vote for laws in the public tribunes, uh, sorry, not tribunes, assemblies. Yeah, uh, uh, that that their benefactor supported at court cases. They would cheer for his when if he was a lawyer, or or even if he was on the stand, they would yeah. cheer for him Hoorah. at the right time. And in return, he would act as their lawyer. He would give them resources. He would care for them if they were sick. It was what they had instead of the welfare state. Dude, this right? sounds great. Here's the problem. It's very anti-meritocratic, and it creates very stable but very inefficient systems ah. where you know loyalty is the first prize, and as a result, competence is not particularly prized. And so you get very inefficient states that are often quite violent because anyone who challenges this patronage network can get smashed down very quickly. See, I want to say a thing about the word loyalty. My sense is that since we're in ancient Rome, let's go back a step even further to ancient Greece. Yeah. Aristotle had the sense, had you know, 
talked about virtue a lot. And he found that virtue is a balance in all things. So any particular access, you can go crazy. So courage sounds like a virtue, but if you- If you're stupidly courageous, you're an idiot, yeah. Yeah, then you're just reckless. Loyalty seems like the positive word. I think fealty is when it goes too far. Yeah. And, uh, and we've definitely got a lot of fealty in ancient Rome, in the Middle Ages, yeah, the, and the, in South Africa today. A, a traditional um, oath-swearing ceremony that a medieval lord would, would swear is, or, or medieval servant is, um, I will to my lord be true and faithful and love all that he loves and shun all that he shuns. Oh, which is total obedience. How, est- how esteemy is that? Exactly. Hey? That's such a control on the esteem economy. It's like, I have to like what he likes. And I have to hate what he hates. Oh. No, exactly. They, and that is, the, that is purely anti-meritocratic because the thing about the esteem economy is even more, you know, one of the things about the property economy is that price signals are supposed to be in a free market indicators of how much a society values some goods relative to other goods. Yeah. And that can be very useful. It's useful to know that Kobe Bryant, the late Kobe Bryant, or uh, in South Africa's context, like who's a great sports Gary Player, who's meeting, uh, the going into the White House in a minute. To get it, a Medal of Freedom, isn't it? Oh. Yeah. So Gary Player has like been paid a hell of a lot to like hit a ball across a it's yard. Yeah. So it's an odd, <laughs> odd, odd thing to be paid for. It's really weird. Whereas like people who who deliver water bottles don't get paid that much, mm. but it signals to you that somehow society values the guys who can hit the ball Hitting with a, a stick. Hitting a ball into a hole very, a hell of a very lot. well, yeah. And the esteem economy is even more directly an indicator of, of, of value versus non-value. And if, you've, if you're compelled to like what everyone else likes or what, your, or what your Lord likes, then it seems like that's an, that's, that's an environment in which good ideas are more likely to be contained and yeah. bad ideas are more likely to get this viral contagion where they just spread so, so, so like a, from like the a, head down. Like a, you know, from a historical perspective, every society, most human societies across the whole of history were patronage networks of some kind, um, and most human societies were desperately poor in part because of it. And this is one of the things that liberalism changes. It breaks us away from these ties of like kinship and oath swearing and like blind obedience to authority based off of um, some sort of divine. Uh, uh, inheritance, Um, it breaks us off the patronage thing and it says, no, no, actually uh, meritocracy is the way to go. And that's bound up with liberalism in a lot of ways. Consent of the government is about, it's it's trying to make it more meritocratic, right? Because the populace is allowed to change a ruler who's not working properly. Yeah, we don't have to like what the ruler likes. In fact, we can say, hey, ruler, not only do we like different things to you, we don't like you. Yeah, you're rubbish. And you suck, and we want you to go away, and we want someone better. And surprise, surprise, the moment that that thing comes about, human wealth explodes Ooh. in a way that's never been experienced before. The happiness explosion. And we go from basically all, almost all living in miserable poverty and relatively small numbers and dying young <laughs> to living long, uh, ha- having billions and billions of us around the planet yeah. and being extremely wealthy compared to the past. And then there's more time to watch golf or write dirty novels. Or, or watch TV shows about like four or lesbians or even, kind of bring up a cat. Exactly. Or even just like, get drunk. This great, yeah, this great <laughs> social diversity. But the point that I'm trying to lean on is that like aesthetically, culturally, the great social, the diversity yeah, exactly. that we, we find have, we have a richness is preconditioned on now that, people being allowed to like whatever they like. There, and there are I some problems like, though. Right. Yeah, 
yeah, yeah. there are some problems. People lose kind of sense of meaning. They can feel disconnected from things. They don't know where their place is. They, they search for meaning. And that's why people seem to have these sort of weird existential crises, even when yeah. their lives are going quite well. Yeah. Because without this, what I would call a very natural human system of organization, there's something deep in our lizard brain that says, no, 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 there's something wrong with this whole liberalism thing. Right. So if you're not being told who to like, or if you're not, or to be more precise, if society isn't programming you to just like what your Lord likes, and you have to figure out what to like yourself, you also have to figure out how to like yourself. And yeah, then it's yes. very easy as a 22-year-old who's just finished university and isn't that exceptional academically, isn't that exceptional at partying and socializing, isn't that exceptional at uh, at hard work. You're kind of in the middle of the road on a few important axes to be like, well, maybe I don't like myself at all. And then you go on a holiday to find something about yourself that's special or you join the EFF and yeah, burn or, down a high or, school all sorts of or a happen, library right? people, or something and then you get very excited. People again. get sucked into radicalism. Uh, you know, Young Muslims join ISIS even though they live in a relatively comfortable environment in London. Yeah. Uh, young white men go on 4chan, uh, read the po politics board and then go and shoot up a whole the, the mosque or something. Yeah. Uh, people join the EFF. People become identitarian lunatics. People become, you know, extinction rebellion. Kind role, of, role kind of, because they're yeah. seeking out a law. Seeking out to serve. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so this is the one problem with liberalism is it doesn't scratch that itch in quite the same way. Which is why um, mm. I would recommend for, so some, true. for some meditations on this book on this thought book by my one of my favorite political writers, a guy called Jonah Goldberg. He's an American. Uh, conservative commentator. Nicholas Lorimer is the foremost oh, yeah, I'm high priest. Almost of, member of his fan club. I read a book called Suicide of the West, which was basically on these themes. Um, and, it's, and it's a very good one, recommended. It's also quite fun. It's also quite light to read in the sense that it's, it's not written densely. Uh, it's very yeah, I've, I've read. I haven't read the books, but I've read some of his shorter stuff, short form stuff. And it is, he, yeah, he's got a, he's deft. Yeah, he's, he's pretty deft. Uh, and he just is, he, in a lot of ways, he's just summarizing ideas from a lot of other uh, authors. But I think it's it's got some key insights into how unnatural and weird uh, the liberal democratic order is. Yeah. That it doesn't really fit with the way things have gone for most of human history. But I, I assume the thought there is but that it's, since it's a, a second nature rather than like... Well, a, he, he his original title for the book was he wanted to call it the tribe of liberty because he said that the goal of a liberal democratic society should actually be to instill a sort of emotional uh, tribal identity around liberal democracy uh, in order to protect it. So in other words, you try and substitute the fact that liberalism doesn't provide you with these things, that capitalism doesn't provide yeah. you with these things with an artificial constructed uh, so, sense that freedom in, in of itself is a freaking awesome thing. So yeah, so to put it in esteem economy terms, yeah. it's like, all of the other systems very naturally get these pyramids where there's a thing at the top that everyone bows down to and, and celebrates and like whatever the instructions come, you you end up yeah. parroting and liking the same things. And that there should be something like that in the liberal case. There should be a liberal yeah. tent where you go in. And if, if I'm wearing the liberal shirt and you're wearing the liberal shirt, then just like two guys wearing a Springbok jersey, exactly. we both automatically like each other yeah. in the bar and we're like, hey man, you also like freedom. Yes. You also like exactly. freedom. Exactly. But, uh, but the reason it's hard to do is precisely the same reason that it's yeah. also not as dangerous as falling in love with one of the other ideologies, which is that it, it undermines itself. It undermines, to an extent, the very notion of us all going the same so way. Isn't it great and that celebrates we all like the questioning tolerance. ourselves 
Yeah. <laughs> so that, that paradox is something that, that requires work to energize in a way that's not as true for... Isn't it great that we're all individuals and none of us believe exactly the same thing? Yeah. You know, that's this is, this is that's why we're, we're on the same team because we're so different. Yeah, exactly. It's not a very coherent, coherent message. <laughs> yeah. And yet I think that, you know, I've, I do find precedence for that kind of thing. Um, f- for example... Well, the idea of the Rainbow Nation, actually think about it is yeah. a little bit like that right that's where i was going to go this thought that what unites us is our diversity is something that no south african who was cognizant anywhere between kind of 1990 and 2008 would not have felt you you might have become alienated from it and be like ah whatever but everyone would know what that feeling is and so the, the human mind is clearly sophisticated enough to latch onto the rainbow as a kind of thing to feel loyalty to. Yeah, exactly. And then that can tip over into fealty if you're not careful that, or, or it can regress back to apathy if that's you That's the difference if from you don't traditional sort of hardline liberalism is that it's not a very rational thought to be loyal to the rainbow nation. Yeah. You know, you didn't sign up for it necessarily. Yeah. Uh, you were born into it. It doesn't, you can't really define what it means. Yeah. Right? It's a very vague concept. You can kind of fill it with some stuff, but not everyone really agrees what's entirely in it. It's and more, as soon as everyone started agreeing, yeah, it wouldn't be the rainbow exactly, anymore exactly. because there'd be a kind of intellectual lack of diversity. So, so, you know, a part of it is recognizing that in a sense we are irrational beings on some part of our soul. Yeah. And that we have to sometimes just accept irrationality as a good thing. It's an actively good thing. It helps us to, to be happy. Dude, I love this. Okay, I'm going to bring up my favorite guy. <laughs> Kwame Kwa- Anthony Appiah. Kwame Anthony Appiah. Because his latest book, so his, his latest book is, is called Social Identities, The Lies That Bind. And it, it's, it's, it's kind of fallen a little bit like a lead ball through the social discourse in America. When it first came out, it was on the New York Times kind of bestseller list and reviewed by every, the Chicago Tribune, the LA Times, the New Yorker, the London Review of Books, the New York Review of Books, the Paris Review of Books. And so like, because Appiah is, I think, you know, because the argument is so strong that Appiah is the leading philosopher of race, because he has such a distinguished personal history, because he has such a an academic stature and authority yeah, as yeah. like one of the chief donors at NYU, formerly at Princeton, formerly at you know, and yet, and and so, and it was often compared to his book was often reviewed alongside Francis Fukuyama, who also wrote a book about social identities at the time. Francis Fukuyama is like the most famous world figure in terms of uh, some... Well, he's faded a bit, but he he still has a lot of... Some thoughts about neoliberalism and so on. But it's kind of gone away. Anyway, that book, that Lies That Bind, is sort of about how social identities are a thing that we have more control over than we think. They program our society. So as they are, there's heavy forces sort of um, changing, making it hard to change. But once you change the program, in other words, if you go into your computer and you change... If you just go into the desktop and you and you and you and you click on Word, it's going to come out the way it comes out, yeah. and you're kind of stuck with that. But you can get into the back door and look at the programming, and th- this is all open source. Human societies are really open source programs. Mm-hmm. And if you get in there and you change the code in the back, then the whole interface is different. the 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 actual app, what it does, can be different, and it can be made much better. Yeah. Um, but his his book before that was kind of more for philosophers. It was called As If. And it was about exactly this point that That's you said. A very ph- philosopher-friendly title, <laughs> right? A little bit vague, nice and open-ended. <laughs> so he borrowed the title from this guy Hans Weinger, 
who is probably the greatest German philosopher of the 19th century whose name no one knows outside of philosophy. That's a very specific list. The greatest German philosopher outside the 19th century. From the 19th, from the 19th century whose name nobody knows. Uh, who else is on that list? Outside of, outside of, um, oh, sorry, yeah. uh, philosophical circles. The point of, the point being, uh, no, but who else is on that very specific list? I can't remember. <laughs> I, I haven't done my masters. No, but I can tell you, okay. You want a few? Uh, oh no, I've, I've done, I've made a mistake. Uh, Fichte. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, no, I believe you. I just wanted to know there were other names on the list. No, there are. So, okay. Anyway, so yeah. the, the names everyone knows are Schopenhauer, Kant, uh, Nietzsche, Hegel. Yes. Maybe Marx, if you want to count him as a philosopher. <laughs> cough, cough. But, but Weinger is, is sort of belongs to a second tier. Mm. Uh, you might say Gottlieb Frege as well. So Fichte is kind of more poetic. Frege is like a great logician. These are guys that like, that, that non-professional philosophers have never heard of at all. And even if you study philosophy at undergraduate, which is all I did, you you're probably not gonna, yeah. not gonna read them much. But if you go into masters or PhD level, then you deal with them. And, and I haven't, so I'm not particularly au fait with them, but I know lots of people who have. And when you say vying it to them, they're all like, you know, oh yeah, I remember when I was uh, 25, we read Weinger. And then he went away. And this is exactly the position, by the way, that Johann Sebastian Bach was in in music mm. for about 100 years after his death. He dies in, nine, in 1750, and he never goes away. His music is always taught in musical conservatories, but it's never performed to the public ah, until Franz Liszt brings him back and makes him really popular. Yeah. And Appiah is trying to be the Franz Liszt to to Weinger, as if okay, he's Bach, and, kind of, and be like, he belongs alongside Kant and Nietzsche and Hegel as people that, that as should be popular should philosophers. Know, yeah. And the reason is that Weinger came at the end of the 19th century when people had figured out uh, a whole bunch of things, huge revolutions in mathematics, uh, most particularly the sort of discovery or invention of the imaginary number, yes. the square root of negative one. Oh, yeah. And it's like, it's the kind of thing you, in high school or, or primary school, wherever you get taught it, not primary school. <laughs> Some of us. I don't know what, yeah, I don't know what genius primary school you went to. Jan Seliers. Jan Seliers, they teach a different curriculum. <laughs> but you know how it is, dude. People tell you, like, you've learned about negative numbers that already didn't make sense, but it kind of makes sense because you know what it is to yeah. owe someone and now, money. And now here's a number that, like, actually can't exist. It really doesn't make sense, but no. they tell you that you have to just accept it. And you're like, oh, okay, whatever. You know, just tell me how to get to the answer. Now it turns out, Weinger argues, the high school attitude is the correct attitude. <laughs> the number doesn't make sense. Anyone who tells you it does make sense is, 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 is landed themselves with trying to explain a logical contradiction that can't be explained. But the high school's attitude is not just that it doesn't make sense. It's also like, if I'm gonna get through this exam, you have to tell me how to use this. Yes. What are the rules? Yeah, what do I do with it exactly? And that's fine. That's all uh, there is. Uh, someone once said about quantum mechanics, right? If you understand quantum mechanics, you don't. Exactly. <laughs> and so quantum mechanics is just, is, is just on the verge. We've already had a bunch of sort of discoveries about the implausibilities of, of the nature of the physical world. One of them being Ernst Mach, who's another philosopher from the 19th century, a uh, German guy who most people don't know, excepting they know Mach one, Mach two, Mach three, as in the speed of sound, yes. which comes from him. Okay. But he was a philosopher of science and he posited, uh, I would say Einstein's second law, 
in other words, that energy and matter and space and time are kind of- All the same thing. All forms of the same thing and that gravity is the sort of underlying uh, frame of reference that's preserved across those modalities. Um, anyway, you know, this is a kind of crazy idea that doesn't really make sense. How can you say energy and stuff are the same? Yeah. Um, in, in, anyway, in economics, there's another thing that bothered Weinger. He noticed that like all of economics kind of starts with the thought that you're a rational automaton, that you pursue your own interests in this kind of uh, rankable way. When we all know that- God, it doesn't make sense yeah, at all. For many reasons. Like you hang out with a five-year-old and you're like, that's definitely not an irrational automaton. And then you go to hang out with your 30-year-old friends and you're like, they're like worse than five-year-olds. Yeah. So Weinger noticed that like Marxists and whatever, some people wanted to re just throw traditional economics out of the book, throw throw Adam Smith away. And he was like, no, just yeah, so like- Say mankind is not homo economicus as a Marxist professor once said. Exactly, exactly. And he was like, no dude, this is just like the square root of negative one. There is an irrationality here. Yeah. It's based on an irrational assumption. But if you just get the rules for how it works- It's actually freaking useful. It's so useful. And so that was, so his great kind of insight and the reason that he's, that Appiah thinks, one of the reasons Appiah thinks is very important is the history of the 20th century in philosophy is largely about Americans coming to dominate the sort of European American debate with a new idea about how to know what's true, what's really true. And their answer is pragmatism. And it's like what's true is useful. And Weinger turns out to be the clearest expression of this idea uh, coming out of Germany. Well, this is, this is exactly the, the philosophical way of saying of what I've always said, which is sometimes you just got to eyeball it. Exactly. <laughs> you've just got to eyeball it and, and you've got there to embrace no, yeah. human irrationality. You've got to embrace the fact that, that, that there are some things like how we esteem teams, like how we use numbers, like well, how yeah, it's, you it's do- It's sort of a balancing act, ordinary, right? Because we also don't want to, you know, just praise the sun king. You don't want to fall into <laughs> mysticism. You don't want to yes. let people get away with hoodwinking you. But at the same time. But, and so I think- irration a robot. So I think irrationality is like evil. You, the, the thing with evil is if you think you're going to totally eradicate evil, then you're, then you're gonna propagate evil. Your mission can't be, like n there's no thing you'll ever do that's gonna get rid of evil. So at some level you kind of have to resign yourself to it, to there being some of it, but you've gotta try and contain it. Exactly. Irrationality is the same. There's no way you're gonna get rid of irrationality. There's no particular move you're gonna do and there's no infinite sequence of moves that you're gonna do that are gonna get rid of irrationality. So the best you can hope for is to contain it uh, into a small little box like the square root of negative one, know the rules of how to use it and then take it from there. Anyway, so the patronage network. <laughs> Going back to our original <laughs> point. <laughs> is, is like, an uncontained form of both irrationality and the sort of evils of selfishness and parroting and all this kind of thing. Because that, it can't- That allows it to yeah. spread through and ramify of, across society. One of the things about the patronage network is of course, for most people who are involved in a patronage network, it's not better than the alternative, which is a sort of free liberal uh, society where everyone can get something yeah. out of the system from working hard. Yeah. Oh, my phone has just died. Um, uh, so, 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 for the people at the bottom who you know hold up the whole thing, it actually makes more sense to transfer to a freer system. Yeah, but they don't because it's got all these other things built into it. You know about like people and yeah, yeah. And, and things that are not entirely right. If you go for a liberalism, you might have to tolerate queers. But if you're a homophobe because you're so used to listening to the lords homophobia, well, you might have to be good then, at something other than loyalty. Yeah, and right. a lot of a lot yeah, of people doubt, Yeah, and yeah. a lot of people doubt themselves. Right. 
uh, in the oh, in the Middle Ages, it used to be because oh, well, I'm a peasant. All I know is farming. Why would I ever, you know, how, I can never. How would I undo a system yeah. that then how, how expects I, me to not no, necessarily would, yeah, be a farmer? Exactly. How would I do something where someone has told me my whole life what to do? It's like it feels scary and unnatural. Yeah. You want someone to tell you what to yeah. do. I've been a sheep my whole life. Uh, I could exactly. never be a horse. Be a horse or a, or a sheepdog. Um, and I think there's at least something in South Africa's sort of racial trauma that makes people afraid um, of of going out there and saying, you know, I, we can do it for ourselves. Yeah, it might be that that. I mean, this is what we, Biko was talking about. We carry about, these right? scars. Yeah, he was saying we need to uh, go out there and be proud of who we are and what we can do. Yeah, because he saw this pathology. I mean, I'm sure uh, a lot of a lot of white people have probably had a conversation with someone who's black at some point who said something like, um, "Who said something demeaning or racist about black people?" Yeah, no, that right? does happen. It does happen, and I think how can you expect more from? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Us. This kind of soft bigotry of low expectations. Yeah, uh, and I think there's at least a little bit of that. Pinning, underpinning the passionate network, apart from the fact that the passionate network is, in any context, a relatively stable, pretty easy to understand system. Right, right. It's got a lot of things actually going for it. Yeah. Uh, except, you know, making people wealthy. That's the one thing it doesn't do. It's definitely not. Except, the, except the five people at or, the top. Or free-minded. Yes, or free-minded. Yeah. Uh, so maf- Mafias are another good example of how kind of passionate Perfect, perfect yeah. passionate networks. And so your thought is that it's that, that the EFFs uh, pattern of behavior generally and particularly in regard to its support for the public protector is is going to seem confusing to you insofar as they are kind of trying it's like what, what what's really in it for them well here's an answer they're just trying to protect the patronage network that already exists in the ANC that they've already tapped into in parts yeah, of the they country they just want in and they want to grow that by kind of being the cheerleaders to Busisiwe Mkwebane, well, who I, is the I, attack dog against yeah. the greatest threat that the patronage network has at the moment, namely Sora Ramaphosa. I, no, if, I, if that's I, your story, I, no, 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 then I, I just agree. want to say he's not a threat. Story. Yeah, I don't okay. agree with that story. It's not that they want to grow the patronage network because that patronage networks don't grow except in the number of people participating in them. They don't like grow in terms of, of wealth or stuff that much unless they find a new source to plunder. They want to supplant certain people in the network. Uh-huh. They see her as being a tool from which they can launch their bid to supplant right. these people. So ideally, they want Cyril Ramaphosa to supplant some of his minions with them. So, or alternatively, or alternatively if, 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 Ramaphosa, Cyril, yeah. if you got rid of Ramaphosa, then... David Mabuza becomes president. Julius Malema can become deputy president. Exactly, exactly. Something precisely. like that. Yeah. Okay, Nicholas, that's a reasonable theory I think you have there. Oh, we just came up with it on the fly. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm okay. sure someone said something like that and we're just subconsciously regurgitating it. You know, we, we hang out, we're fortunate to know a lot of very clever clogs in this building who yeah, make I, thinking easy sometimes. <laughs> yeah, we just osmosis kind of, no citations. Thank yes. heavens we're in journalism, not in academia. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> okay, so dude, you've got another theory about Munster oh, yes. and the media, the okay. Munster media. So uh, this was, what, what, how did I title it in the notes? Uh, you thought social media was bad. Wait till you find out what the printing press did. So I think we've talked about this thought a bit before. Yeah, we have, yeah. The printing press is just a really disruptive event. But I wanted to go into a little bit of exactly how it was disruptive. 
One so of the where is Munster? Because uh, I think Munster. I think isn't there a, a, one a, a rugby team in yeah. Ireland that's so called this, Munster? They're really good. Southern they're often the Ireland champions. Is, is called Munster, but no, this one, and I'm not sure if you're pronouncing it correctly, but it's in Western Germany, close I, to the Netherlands. I think you are trying to say Munster, yeah. Munster, yeah. Um, so in the 1500s, kind of around the time of King Henry VIII of England. Uh, Sort of the Reformation was getting going. Before it, Shakespeare, but after the Black Death. Yeah, yeah, precisely, precisely. Uh, there was this big movement. Uh, you know, we had the Reformation, the Catholic Church was being overturned. But the Reformation didn't just stop with Lutheranism, which was the first form of Protestantism. Yeah. It, it, it explodes out into like a million different... There's like Calvinism. There's Calvinists. And then there's this group called Anabaptists. Right now, today, I think they're connected to people like the Amish. Uh, yeah, you know, fairly peaceful people. There's a there's a very, uh, but this early sect of Anabaptism, what they really were interested in is that you had adult baptism, and also they said that because uh, mankind was created all by God, we're all equal, and we shouldn't just be equal in rights, which is kind of the sort of modern Christian view. Equal before the law, and equal before the law, we should be equal in wealth too. Uh-huh, commies. Yes, I, so I they just were proto-commies. Say, commies. So the thing about being baptized when you're an adult, they were like, baptism is kind of rapey. Yes, exactly. Right. If you're you doing it to a six-week-old baby. child can't really accept baptism because it doesn't know what it's doing. Yeah. That was their thought. So you need to wait until they're like of and, an and age they, of consent. They pointed to the fact that I think, you know, Jesus is baptized when he's, what, 30-something. Yeah. yeah. 31. Eh? 31, yeah. John the Baptist. Um, he's, yeah, exactly. He's baptized by John the Baptist at like 30. So they kind of followed that example. Now, uh, their cause was boosted massively by pamphlets that they printed. This was the main form of communication in the sort of 1500s. Once the printing presses all started going, the thing that really sold, the thing that you could get printers to do millions of, mm. was these radical pamphlets. It was a theological document. One, you know, page. one page. Yeah. And uh, even though not everyone could read, they could be read out in public spaces. Uh, and they were often very fiery sermons denouncing the corruption of the Catholic Church, the foolishness of some theological point, which is something the layperson was much more educated in in those days so, than today. So this was like the steamball tweet. Yeah, exactly. Like you get some really high up person to put it out, and then you get hundreds of people picking it up and like reading it out in the public square. And yeah, they imagine all a, get a their Marianne likes. Williamson tweet, right, today. Yes. She's that, that weird new age church lady who just ran for Democratic president she was she's gonna beat hate with the wave of love yeah exactly uh she is a good example of the kind of way it would happen you know in nowadays we get retweets their day uh, those days you would pass out the pamphlets people would read in the public square yeah people really got behind it yeah and this thing got a little bit out of control at uh in i think the 1530s there was a little bit of a rebellion in the city of munster where, which was controlled by a bishop, not by a lord. So it was actually directly controlled by the church. But these radical Anabaptists throw out the bishop, they drive him into exile out of the city, and they take over and they form a uh, basically a commune. Uh, so they get a base. They get a base, yeah. They get an HQ. The Anabaptist they, they commies a, a get a mayor, an HQ. you know, who's like, this is the now the new ruler of the city. And he's this fiery religious figure, and they whip the whole population into a frenzy. And the rich start getting their stuff looted and they're killed in the streets. Anyone who isn't sufficiently devout enough or defends the old order is burned or hacked up by mobs. It gets real nasty yeah. and real chaotic. And the whole of Europe, now this is right like in the tail end of the Middle Ages, right? Yeah. So, you know, everywhere is ruled by kings and lords. They see radical peasants and townsmen 
deciding to rule themselves, yeah, ruling themselves and splitting all the, the wealth oh, yeah. and cutting each other and cutting people up. It just looks like the worst version of anarchy. It's it's exactly because uh, a lot of those people they were very uh, they admired the ancient Greek authors quite a lot yeah. actually in the Middle Ages. Um, and you know the, the 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 attacks on democracy by sort of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle yeah. and all them they took very seriously and they said this is exactly what we're worried about this is why you can't let the commoners do anything because they just they they make yes. everyone yeah. poor and they kill people and they don't know how to run anything yeah so just to spell that out the ancient Greeks are usually today considered to be the people who kind of write our founding text for democracy and to a large that's extent only that's the true Athenians, really but but that's partly because they write especially about how dangerous democracy is. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and, and real constitutional democracy begins with an understanding of how dangerous the mob is. Exactly. And they're trying to figure out how to harness that. But in the Middle Ages, with the Renaissance, rediscovering yeah. these texts and interpreting to their own ends, it is very easy to be like, look, these guys are clearly saying, exactly. you can't let commoners Run anything, yeah, because they're they're, they're they're silly. So and now we have evidence of it. The Anabaptists have exactly. gone buck crazy. They've gone completely insane. This needs to stop. So a whole bunch of the lords of Germany get put together a force and they put it under the command of the bishop who was chucked out of Munster. And he returns with his big army to slay siege the city. Yeah. Now medieval cities are walled, um, so it's very difficult to take them. Yeah. And the population is whipped up into defending themselves. They're filled with religious fervor, so they're not surrendering. So a siege begins and they try to cut the city off from food and it gets very grim. At some point, the leader of the rebellion decides that like uh, Gideon from the Bible, he's going to go out with 12 followers and destroy the enemy uh, simply, you know, by like, God's fury on his side. Yes. And he ends up being killed, beheaded. His head is put on a pike and his genitals are nailed to the city door by the besieging Catholic army. Which is a very Catholics, you gotta <laughs> love Catholic aesthetic. <laughs> the paper, the the Pope and his like red shoes, <laughs> and the Sistine Chapel and the testes nailed to the gate. I mean, I, this is really, really around the time the Sistine Chapel is just being built. And like, yeah, it's it's like the Sistine Chapel is less than a hundred years old, I think. It was yeah, and uh, and that great sculptor is sort of putting the interior decor oh, yeah. in there. Yeah. Uh, so. The, the 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 new guy who takes over after the first leader is killed, you know, because he goes out on this sort of religious thing. Like all of these cults, when things start to go wrong, he declares himself the heir of David from the Bible and the master of the new kingdom of Zion, and he makes polygamy compulsory. <laughs> he has 16 wives like, himself. Things are getting much worse. We need to be much more crazy. Like the problem was, exactly. we weren't nearly mad enough. Well, one of the reasons they made polygamy compulsory in the besieged city is because a lot of men had been killed, and so there were lots of women of marriageable age who had no husbands. So they thought, ah, you know, we've got to. You got to say in the Bible, go forth and multiply. Yeah, share the woman, share the wealth. Uh, so Good it Lord. becomes this sort of bizarre communist, <sighs> sweet baby polygamy, Jesus. Weeps. Uh, yeah, no, it was it was very chaotic. Eventually, the city falls because it's out of food and everyone is starving. And I think someone opens the gates. The Catholic army marches in and executes all of the rebels, um, whose whose remains are hung in cages um, until they decay. At, and I think. I read online that the cages are actually still there. Not the bodies, obviously, but the cages that the rebels were executed in is still in the city. Mm. Uh, so I think, so what, what, is, what, is the, what is the lesson of the story? One, uh, technology can be very disruptive. None of this would have been possible without the printing press. Mm -hmm. Two, um, the sort of the things we think of as thing like communism as 
being Marx's creation. But really, the roots of a system like that, they do, I think, rest in the human soul to a certain degree, and they can come out. There's often attempts to pull them out. This was, this particular instance was following on from what's called the German Peasants' War, mm-hmm. um, where one of the cries was, you know, the Lord didn't make us noble and peasant, he made us mankind or something like yeah. that. that was. So these these sentiments of how human beings are all equal yeah. or how the opposite, right, how human beings are actually completely unequal. Distinct, yeah. Um, are, are, are thoughts that keep being reimagined in new ways over mm. history. Mm. Mm. Uh, and we should, if we want to see the effects of what going one way or the other can be, uh, history is often very useful for giving us examples of what a particular idea taken to its extreme looks like. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think so. Umberto Eco has a story. He's a, he's a recently passed away sort of Italian novelist and historian, uh, about a similar rebellion of a couple of hundred years before the printing press mm. where you have the Catholic church, which has established its wealth and its traditions of pomp and ceremony. Uh, and in re- reaction against that, you have mendicant monks. monks. Uh, these are monks who take kind of oaths of poverty and walk around on very simple shoes and simple frocks yeah. and spread the word. And they kind of make the claim that they are living a life much more like the life Jesus lived and that the Catholic Church is living a life much more like the Pharisees. Yes. And, you know, look at the Bible. There's a, there's a right and there's a wrong to which one of those two paths you should take. So some of those monks make the argument in that sort of extreme form. Other monks, are, other monks like to say, here's the thing. Uh, we need some diversity in the ways that we celebrate the Lord. And so while it's all good and well to have stained glass windows and chapels where you're singing and everything's well organized, monks, yeah. you need some mendicant monks to be going around and doing the other way. This is this is a this process that you're talking about here is one that happens several times through yeah. the medieval period of the church. The church is actually quite broad, and a lot of it's you know yeah, it's Catholic in a real sense of like uh, universal. Being, yeah. yeah. Um, so there's many different ways of, of worship, and these reform movements come in every now and again, and they change up. Yeah. details here and there. And they set up their own kind of regime. So there's the Franciscans, there's the Dominicans, there's the, and they all have sort of more or less tolerance for like how much you should eat and what exactly. you should wear and how, when you should one sleep. Of, one of the reasons the Reformation actually happens is because the late Catholic Church, the late medieval Catholic Church is really trying to solidify its grasp over orthodoxy. Yeah. And by, um, you know, burning more heretics than it used to. It used to kind of just be like, no, nah, no, nah, as long as they're vaguely within the bounds, it's okay. Yeah. But they start to take a more hardline approach and that's when trouble happens. Yeah, then they get the response. But so in this in this earlier period, uh, there's there's some Dominican monk who goes, who goes full commie yeah. and says, we've got to share everything. And again, kind of managed to get, he doesn't, he gets a sort of a little bit of a fortress, but mainly it's like a mountain in in around Croatia, yeah. So it's it's like on quite the Croatian coast, yeah. Yeah, it's really hard. It's like an important place to travel and trade through. So they've they've got some income through that, and a lot of stored wealth and grain and all kinds of delicious goats, and goat's cheese. But um, it's very hard to penetrate with the military from the outside because of the natural defenses and the fortifications. So these guys in the first year, like one of the first thing the monk, he's like, God, these monks wearing their like, like one, like their brown frocks, that's still <laughs> way too fancy, naked 
Gotta be naked. <laughs> it's like it's like the woke person who's like, no, no, I'm I'm uh, not only uh, you black and 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 lesbian, but I'm also trans as well. Yes, yes. I'm I'm superior to all of you. It's yeah. like going one step further. You really got to go one step further. So he was like, you got to be <laughs> naked, and never mind polygamy. He's like, you have to sleep with anyone who wants to sleep with you. <laughs> And like, you've got to share all the booze now. So it was Africa burn for like a year. Yeah. And it got really smelly and oozy. And every now and then, like, and I suppose the party would get slightly boring, but just when it would get boring, these guys, the military sort of small military uh, groups from the outside would try and knock them over and like get back the trade route and stuff. And then the dudes could get very excited, but also the women would have to fight. They were very egalitarian in that way. Mm. They'd beat the guys off, throw rocks at them from the top of the wall. They'd go away and then they'd go and se- celebrate with another back Back before modern firearms, having uh, a hill with a wall was a very powerful thing. <laughs> yeah, hill, wall, rock. It was very strong. <laughs> Gravity turns out to be amazing. You can build all the fancy uh, uh, trebuchets Trebuchet, and rams yeah. you want. It's not going to help you against a very good hill and a very good wall. <laughs> so these guys did well with their like full-on communism uh, s- situation until they didn't and then they all died. Um, Sounds like most communism. Which, which, is, which is generally how the story goes. Um, but one of the things that I thought was sweet when I read that, I was also reading poetry by this guy, Joseph Brodsky, who's the last Soviet poet uh, to have won a Nobel Prize. And it was, was the kind, you know, they all went to the gulag. He was the kind of guy who went to the gulag and sort of made fun of it by saying that he actually cheated the system by having a really good time, <laughs> which then got reinterpreted by workies as being like, oh, the gulag wasn't that bad. No, 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 no. It's just like, if you're a great poet, you can figure out yeah, how if, to enjoy yourself anyway. If you know who to bribe and you're famous for the fancy poems you do, it's probably not as bad as if you know you're a... I, yeah, a little bit, a little bit of... You're oh, a low-ranking apparitchik who falls afoul of the regime. It's not yeah. so fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so so Brodsky made the claim that the the Catholic Church kind of after World War II in particular, after World War I, it starts getting smaller. And then after World War II, it gets it loses some of its moral higher ground because of its positive association with the Nazis. And the, and the fascists in Italy. Not a, not a very fair association because it was mostly coerced. Right, but it could have been brave and strong. Yes, and true. it could have been brave and it strong. It could have been Churchill. It was not Churchill. It was not Churchill, no. Um, but it also did not have sea between it and the Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out after the hill, the ocean is one of the great forms of defense. Um, but but so he said the, the sort of inheritor of the Catholic Church or the descendant of the Catholic Church is the Red Cross, this sort of initiative to go around and during pandemics or, or famines or, you know, moments of real human crisis to try and get out the blankets and the food and the water uh, because it's about charity as an important thing to do, but not charity as an entire way of life that should be compulsory for everyone, yeah. which is kind of the Catholic line. And by implication, by very gentle implication, I think Brodsky was suggesting that uh, the in, that the Soviet Union was the sort of progeny of these more radical reform movements against the Catholic church, yes. the the Protestant radicals who were like, you know, there are only two ways. Either you allow the pomp and ceremony and the Pope to wear red shoes or you burn it all. Yeah. And, uh, and as it turns out, there's actually quite a good middle ground between those two. Yeah. There's, there's, I mean, it's called earth. 
The yes. middle ground is so large that we gave it its own special name. <laughs> and these two things, yeah, it's, it's, it is the boring kind of liberal answer, isn't it? But to say that there's value in both of these approaches. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's, I think it's boring if you leave it at that. I think what's interesting is to try and uh, understand what the conditions are under which communism makes sense and what the conditions are under which it doesn't make sense. So I think in the family, communism makes a lot of sense. I think that sharing resources, it would be kind of weird. I mean, what's the, what's the creed? I think Marx was an extremely good writer. Uh, yeah, he he captured a certain his uh, way with words is unpleasantness brilliant. in particular with the very particular time and place he lived yeah. in, right? But so so lines like his, like from everyone according to their ability to everyone according to their need, mm. this seems right. Like having a family dinner, the person who needs the most food gets like, the most food. They should get the most food, and the person who can produce who needs the, the least, food. like the five year old should not be getting as much food as, as dad. Yes. And if mom and dad, if mom like doesn't eat as much as dad, then maybe dad gets the big piece of the chicken and mom gets the slightly littler piece of chicken and the kids get the littlest piece of chicken. And mom and dad provide more of the food than the children do. That's, that's just what their right. kind of metabolism is. No, but this is the Catholic, this is, sorry, this is the, the capitalist answer. Well, because I paid for the food, I get to choose the No, food. no, but that's what I'm saying is, is that regardless of who, so if you have a, a young girl in lud, yeah, then he, he should doesn't get the produce most. anything. Yeah, he gets the most. He gets the most, even if he's a lout. Yes. I was. I know exactly what this is like. Like <laughs> all of us were, children, the, of course. Eat the most, especially as a you dude. Don't, hey? You don't charge your you don't charge your six year old for accommodation. No. <laughs> <laughs> right. And if you're a sixteen year old guy or a, like twenty one year old guy and you don't have a job, like but you're still growing, like you need you need lunch. And healthy families often are a little bit like the communist ideal in the way they make decisions, right? It's sort of rough consensus. Yeah. Maybe you have one parent who's slightly like a bit of a benign dictator, but like generally but generally speaking, there's a kind of rough consensus behind a lot of decisions. Everyone's got a bit of a veto, and if you don't if you're sort of exercising your veto when you shouldn't, then you go to the gulag. And so, yeah, and sometimes the most called your room, or if you're the husband, you go sleep on the couch or whatever it is. You and know sometimes the most useless person in the family, like, you know, a two year old exercises the strongest of the visas. He's the tyrant of <laughs> yeah. the family yeah. very often. <laughs> it's perfect communism. But like, I think it makes sense to me that the two-year-olds should sometimes be the Stalin of the family. Now, what is it? Uh, Jonah Goldberg makes this point as well. And I think he says, it's like mixing your Gemeinschaft and your Gemeinschaft, which is your macrocosm and your microcosm. <laughs> <laughs> right? So don't, don't apply uh, uh, liberal capitalist democracy to the household, but also don't apply communism to the society. Yeah. Communism has a really important place. Like families are like, uh, I, 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 another Princeton professor, uh, Mark Johnson, he's an Australian who, who's quite a prickly character, but every now and then says something. So he's very nasty most of the time, but now and then he says something sweet. And he was asked, he was sort of tirading against uh, social identity politics of a certain kind. And uh, uh, sort of, he was asked, okay, well, if you if you had to esteem one group over another group, if you had to say what group is the most esteemable group, deserves the highest honor, what would it be? And he said, oh, well, that's easy, mothers. It sounds like the coward's answer, but it's actually the right answer. I did think about it. It is it's the right answer. It's so right. If you, like on every level, in terms of productivity, in terms of creativity, human ingenuity, in terms of like the, 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 the milk of human kindness, in in spiritually, like, it's just very hard to see any group that could compete with mothers. As it turns out, your love for your mother is not irrational. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, probably it is also. <laughs> it's also irrational. <laughs> but, uh, Which yeah. is the nature of love, love to be both reasonable and, and to have something that, 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 uh, that reason can't reach about it. But, but, but the point of that is that, yeah, family units are, are the most enduring. You, you're saying the patronage network is a really enduring form of human organization. I would argue that the family unit is an even more enduring form of human and organization. And a much greater value add version. As there, well. there are there are societies that have not had family units. Um, uh, the Nazis, for one, started some of the some of the work that they did was undermining that, sort of getting people to really think of the fatherland as being the, the parents. Yeah, all totalitarian regimes do that. And, they try and, to break up the family. They yeah. get the children to inform on parents. And, and sometimes they succeed and sometimes they fail. Yeah. And and so George Orwell picks up on that, right, in yes. 1984. But, but for the most part, like across time and space, I think it's been, you know, it's been more common than money and art. It's been about as common as language. And, uh, and so... For, for, for communism to have a home there, I think is not a denigration to communism. Mm. It's like kind of saying communism in a way is one of the greatest things there is mm. within limits. Much like the square root of negative one, it's got to be within limits. If you start plonking it where Just don't it don't try belong, to do a household budget with it. <laughs> yes, that is not where you use the square root of negative one. <laughs> and when you decide how the economy is organized, you don't use communism. <laughs> you don't use the communism. <laughs> so I suppose what we've ended up doing here is kind of putting communism up on a pedestal, uh, which... Uh, if, uh, if if taken out of context, would it get us fired immediately from the yeah. Institute of Race Relations? Not just fired, but taken out into the courtyard and shot. <laughs> shot into the sun. <laughs> <laughs> shot directly into Helos. Um, but, but yeah, I think it's, God damn it. I just, I think it is important because like our, our ideological foes, they're not all wrong. They've got something right. Oh well, you know, all the best lies have a lot of truth at the center of yeah, them. Don't they're they? just they're just they've just misplaced. To 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 think as if we really should be giving everything according to their need and people should be delivering according to their abilities. That's a good as if in its place. Okay. Before we get to kind of musty and fusty, um, I think we better sign off. Yep. Uh, it's been a good week. Thank you for tuning in. And if you like what we do, SMS three two eight two three. Uh, and and say Nicholas Lorimer deserves a raise. <laughs> <laughs> a big if true. <laughs> if, if you put like hashtag dollar dollar, <laughs> then you might win a special prize. You know what? I I would actually love to hear uh, from our, from our listeners a bit more. So if if you want to talk to us, you can email me at Nicholas with an H at IRR.org.za. Yeah. Uh, if you have any feedback on the show that you'd yeah. like to give us. And I'm Gabriel at IRR.org.za. We, we were getting a lot of emails last year um, when our listenership was smaller and it was really sweet. And then uh, our listenership has sort of grown. We've gone mainstream, we've lost the, touch with our fans. And we've <laughs> lost touch with our fans. And, and so we don't know. Uh, someone said that we sounded like we were enjoying ourselves. Yes. Uh, that's my grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> and we wondered whether that was a compliment or a check. Well, listenership against, is up, so I'm not going to argue with the, the wisdom of the crowd. Or the whiskey. Okay. Yes. Next time we're going to have a whiskey. Uh, this time it's been, it's been good chatting with you. And uh, as always, stay thinking. Oh.